1: Bring in show music, please.
2: This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, fallout from the Facebook papers. How much did Zuckerberg know and did he care? Insider's Henry Blodgett.
3: I think that we are in this collective moment blaming Facebook for all of our ills as a society.
2: How best to handle the billionaires? Lawmakers inch closer to a wealth tax, but we're not there yet. Stony Brook economics professor and former Bernie Sanders advisor, Stephanie Kelton.
4: The lowest hanging pay-for fruit is enforcement. We shouldn't have tax cheats, we shouldn't have very wealthy people hiding and failing to disclose income they ought to be paying tax on.
2: Those stories plus, speaking of wealth, Elon Musk's net worth soars with Tesla's trillion dollar market cap.
5: The target seemed way far off and then we watched it just sort of happen and we watched the demand and and the success of the company sort of match it.
2: It's Tuesday, October 26th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Our first headline today on the pod, fresh off the Twitter. A dry topic inflation. Two high profile tech personalities, Jack Dorsey and Kathy Wood. Jack Dorsey, we all know Twitter, Square, the beard, the diet. Kathy Wood, here's a refresh. She is one of Wall Street's most closely watched tech investors. We see coverage over every move in her portfolio. Some have even ventured to say she's the best stock picker ever. Retail traders on Reddit love her, too, offering endearing monikers like Queen and Aunt Kathy. Her ARK Innovation ETF did nine times better than the S&P and 25 times better than the Dow in 2020. She's famous for her big bets on innovation, Bitcoin, for example, and Tesla. Here's Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin breaking down the inflation tweet storm.
5: We've talked about Kathy Wood and her views on inflation, but... Uh, ARK Invest, uh, the founder, jumping in to the latest inflation uh, debate. It started when Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey tweeted, in his words, hyperinflation is going to change everything. It's happening. Kathy Wood uh, responded, in 2008-09, when the Fed started quantitative easing, I thought inflation would take off. I was wrong. Instead, velocity, the rate at which uh, money turns over per year, declined taking away its inflationary sting. Velocity still is falling, In uh, a long series of tweets Wood went on to predict that once the holiday season passes, companies would face uh, excess supplies, and that prices uh, would, at that point, unwind. When I was at Saul with her, she, she actually made the case that over the next
6: five years there's gonna be enormous deflation.
2: I believe we are seeing, it's going to be incredibly confusing, I think, to people. Just look at what's happened to the bond market this year. You know, against all expectations, yields have dropped from, uh, I think it was 1.75 at the peak in March down to 1.3 as inflation expectations are exploding, right? Uh, we believe the reason for that is that we're probably. When all is said and done and the dust clears from the supply chain problems and everything, we're probably in a highly deflationary world.
6: But her argument about deflation at the time, and I don't know if you think it's reflective of what she's trying to say now, was actually as a function of technology. She thinks that, that there's going to be massive deflation. And then the question, of course, begs, if you believe that we're in a deflationary environment, of course, which seems at odds with where we are, at least right now, then... Can you still be a Bitcoin bull, which, of course, she is, you know, arguing that 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 it could be worth something on the order of five hundred thousand dollars a coin uh, over the next five years. I think
7: there's two stories, though. There's the
6: weighing scale there. I don't know.
7: Look, inflationary versus deflationary. There was a really interesting thread on Twitter. Preston Fish, a guy I know of and and I've interviewed in the past, points out that for things that we need, everything from housing to food prices to gas prices, higher education, healthcare costs, all of those things have far outpaced inflation in some cases. It's the things that maybe we want and that we like, things like technology that are certainly helpful um, that have been deflationary. And if you combine those two things, that's where you kind of run into problems. It's, you know, for those of us who can spend more, you have a better situation than the people who are in a position of spending all of their income on things they need.
5: And there's I think there's like long term, like sort of really, you know, neat things to think about, like what the Internet did for for price discovery and and Amazon and B2B. And you could see everything everywhere And, and what technology did for things like Airbnb or Uber or, you know, wherever you're using everything, you know, you sort of putting everyone on a plane that needs right. to go to a certain point. You can save all this money. And then you think of healthcare care and, and the promise of uh, sequencing the human genomes, that sooner or later we're going to prevent things. Instead of people mm-hmm. spending three weeks in the hospital for $10,000, 20000 a day, whatever it is, maybe we understand how to prevent and, and handle. And, and there's, I mean, prescription drugs, if they work, are the cheapest thing around. It's if if you don't need too, uh, yeah. chronic care. So there's all these long-term things that are great. But then near-term... It's just the way it is. We're printing money uh, gangbusters. They, they, you know, we, we, aren't, we aren't handling the energy situation very well, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, I don't think. In, in this transition, we're rushing it way too quickly. Uh, and then you look at all the other, uh, all the other stuff, uh, the, you know, the supply chain. Think If we can't get toilet paper on the shelves, how do you make a mm-hmm. Pratt & Whitney engine and aerospace components with chips? And, I mean, that's, I would really worry about things. My car's here. My oh. car's here. What's in bed, six here. months? My, yeah, no, longer. longer? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it was like in one of those boats or, or something, or stuck in the port over there where it couldn't leave. But
7: That's why uh, UPS earnings are going to be interesting today, too, just logistics <laughs> and getting things places. Yes,
5: they will. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, so, so my own little supply chain story. It's, it's, it's easing. It's easing. I don't think it may not <laughs> be over. Supply chain but
7: problems it, are over. <laughs> I've got my car.
6: Elon Musk is now the world's richest person by more than $100 billion. This thanks to the recent surge in Tesla stock at a net worth of $289 billion. Musk ranks higher than the market cap of 20 of the 30 Dow industrial companies. That's as a human being falling just behind Disney at $312 billion and ahead of Salesforce, Nike and Coca-Cola. Tesla hitting A $1 trillion market cap yesterday on the news that Hertz is ordering 100,000 cars to build out its EV fleets. And a bullish analyst note from Morgan Stanley uh, putting the stock price at $1,200, or at least that's their expectation. Tesla closing up more than 12% on that day. Tesla now worth more than the next nine largest global automakers combined. And this brings me to two thoughts, guys. One was sitting on the set with both of you in Davos, Switzerland now four years ago when we heard about his compensation scheme, which if you remember at the (laughs) time he was going to take no pay, not a dollar. We had a whole debate on the on the same was freezing outside. If somehow magically he would get the company to six hundred fifty billion dollars, which is literally what the plan calls for, if you can believe this. Uh, he would collect the equivalent of about $55 what billion gets- dollars in compensation. Otherwise, he gets absolutely Okay, what nothing? if you get it to $650 Zero. billion
7: and then it immediately collapses to $500 billion? Is it just hitting that market capitalization milestone that matters? Or is it keeping it there for a certain time? Is it hitting so it? So here's where
6: it gets day? even more interesting. The shares vest, uh, but then he has to hold the shares for five years. But you form. still
7: get it, right? If the if, even if uh, market
6: capitalization is the weirdest thing I've ever No, 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 no. You, 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 you can't. Today. It's impossible. The game. It was going to take nothing except if he hit these these marks at at fifty billion dollar increments, and it all seemed, frankly, insane. I think it thought it thought at least I thought it was. I crazy. it was a stretch to get no to way. those marks. Yeah. I thought the company was worth, I think, fifty billion dollars or a hundred. But the fact that it was going to get to double that or triple that or to a trillion. I mean, I think. You know, you wouldn't have had your head screwed on right. And then to think a year or two later that there was an offer, or I don't know if there wasn't a real offer, but if you remember funding secured, the famous funding secured at $420 a share. He wanted to take the company private. And people thought that, including myself, I thought that was an act of insanity. And here we are.
7: You know, I, I so. spoke with Ron Barron yesterday. He's been a longtime investor, uh, both in Tesla and SpaceX, and he's going to be on the show with us tomorrow. We talked a little bit about about it because he's like, yeah, Tesla crossed a thousand dollars today. I said, what was your cost basis for getting into that? Forty dollars, roughly 40 bucks for what he had gone in. He's been a long term holder. Remember, though, there was a point where he paired some of his holdings I think not maybe not the last time we talked to him, but in the last year at some point, he did right, pair he did. some of his holdings. Um, and it was because at that point it was just too much for what too it much. was supposed to be in his fund. But we'll talk to him about all of this stuff. It's coming
6: still up. worth saying that even Elon Musk thinks or has thought up until now, last last couple of year, year or two, that he believes Tesla is overvalued. And he said that he publicly. Said yeah. So yeah. I, I only say that as a I
5: don't know if that's a caution or not, but here we are. Well, not that money is everything to, to Elon, but to to come up with that compensation package uh, and and to have the confidence in in right. Right, not only the company, but to have it in himself, it, you would need in this. We this is like an expression. It's really stupid to short either Tesla or Elon Musk, never short Elon Musk. And it, it's obviously. Uh, just made poppers out of so many people and hedge funds and everything yeah. else to short Tesla. It has. But the guy, I mean, it, th- that was amazing because it was the target seemed way far off, and then we watched it just sort of happen, and we watched the demand and, and the success of the company sort of match it. Not not on a valuation basis. It's always going to be uh, on on normal metrics. It's always going to look expensive. But based on, I love what Elon said today that um, he didn't understand why Hertz ordering 100,000 cars would, would would move the needle on the right. stock. He said it's not about demand. We can't possibly satisfy the demand we have right now. It's a supply issue, so ordering another 100,000. But but think about what that means when the biggest number one rental company all of a sudden is just totally en masse switching to uh, electric cars. So it's, it's just sort of a seminal more than an actual event, and, it, you know, it's neat. Over 1,000, over a trillion, it's all... You know, a year and a half ago, you wouldn't
7: wouldn't have thought a year and a half ago that Hertz would even be able to make a purchase like this. Remember, we were talking about Hertz's ability to be around. So uh, the difference that a year and a half will make in all of these
5: stories. Um, The demise of the rental car industry, the demise of going to Davos, guys. Uh, Better get your booties on. Get your booties on on today. I wore them in the rainstorm. Have you heard? I have a strong feeling. That the number one morning show is going to be, be as, as said on this show, that we're the number <laughs> one morning show. You know, we have, uh, it's been said on this show that we're the number, uh, no, but um, I have a feeling. picking up
7: tips again from how to promote us,
5: huh? Yeah, exactly. I have a feeling that we're going to be freezing outside again but having the best guests that how do you not go you don't you just can't not go right i mean you got to be there with those year, but there was no meeting those glow Glowhards and klaus and all those guys but uh we got we got we got we got to do it
7: insult your guests before you get there i'm sorry insult
5: your guest he's a a good strategy since the
6: invitation (laughs) hasn't come just yet it's a good strategy joe
7: (laughs) next
2: on squawk pod the continuing saga of the facebook papers Dozens of stories published yesterday based on whistleblower Francis Hoggins document dump about Facebook and division, how CEO Mark Zuckerberg addressed the headlines in the company's quarterly earnings call, and what Facebook can do about the bad press. Insiders Henry Blodgett, when we come back.
3: What I'm seeing is a company that realizes that it has work to do and that its products are causing harm in certain areas and it needs to do better on that, but this moment should pass.
2: our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. a leading global asset manager.
1: Stand Andrew by.
2: This is Squawk Pod from CNBC.
1: Up and Andrew, Q.
6: OK, let's uh, talk a little Facebook this morning with Julia Boorstin. Um shares rising after the company reported third quarter earnings after the bell last night. Julia is going to join us right now with all of the highlights. And there were a plenty. It was quite the conference call. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg seemed to be fighting back.
0: Well, there was a lot in these results, Andrew. So the earnings beat estimates, but revenue, along with revenue guidance, as well as the company's monthly and daily active users numbers, all those different metrics falling short of expectations. But the stock did get a boost from a $50 billion increase in its share repurchase authorization. On the call last night, Mark Zuckerberg defending Facebook in the face of critical articles based on those whistleblower documents.
1: I want to discuss... Uh, the recent debate around our company. I believe large organizations should be scrutinized. So I'd much rather live in a society where they are uh, than one where they can't, where, where they can't be. Uh, good faith criticism helps us get better. But my view is that what we are seeing is a coordinated effort to selectively use leaked documents to paint a false picture of our company.
0: Zuckerberg's sounding all emotional there. He also shifted to talk about his confidence in the opportunity in three new areas of business, creators, e-commerce, and the metaverse. The company is starting to break out Facebook Reality Labs, i will call it FRL, next quarter, An analyst did press press him and COO Sheryl Sandberg for details on the impact of Apple's iOS changes. Sandberg said that they are developing new tools to address measurement as well as targeting shortfalls, saying on measurement they will be able to address more than half of the underreporting by the end of the year, while targeting is a much longer term challenge.
8: As a result of the iOS changes, we don't see the same level of conversion data coming through. So we have to rebuild our targeting and optimization systems to work with less data. So this is a multi-year effort. We're developing privacy-enhancing technology to minimize the amount of personal information we learn and using more aggregate or anonymized data
0: while still allowing us to show those relevant personalized ads and measure ads effectiveness. Guys, back over to you.
6: Julia, that actually raised a question for me, which is, what would they, when they say they have to build new tools, I imagine that means they have to build new tracking tools. This comes at a time when privacy is obviously right in uh, you know, the middle of the discussion. What kind of tools would those be and what, what does that look like?
0: Well, Samberg talked about this a little bit last night, these are aggregating tools. So she said that they're doing this, you know, with respect to privacy and they're figuring out how to gather data about people and, uh, and anonymize that data and target it that way. But what was interesting actually, Andrew, to pull in the Frances Haugen whistleblower story is that yesterday during Haugen's testimony before the UK parliament, she talked about how groups are such a powerful tool. They say, look at all the good we're doing. Like yes, that's true. But like we didn't invent
7: hate. We didn't invent ethnic violence. And that's not the question. The question is what is Facebook doing to amplify or or expand hate? What is it doing to amplify or expand ethnic
8: violence? You're right. I mean Facebook didn't invent hate, but do you think it's making hate worse?
0: Unquestionably it's making hate worse. Haugen, interestingly, talked about how groups are a powerful tool to spread misinformation and hate, but also would be a powerful tool for targeting advertising. So I think that Facebook does have a couple of levers to pull, to pull, but one thing that's interesting is that Snap, of course, said that this iOS issue would not be that big of a deal than it turned out to be. Facebook warned for quarters that this was going to be a problem Andrew, and then they've been preparing and dealing with it and, and developing these tools to target ads without using that tracking data from people's phones.
6: Okay. Julie Borston, thank you for that. We're going to continue this conversation now. Becky?
7: Joining us right now to talk more about Facebook's earnings as well as the ads, the negative press and the so-called metaverse is Henry Blodgett. He's Insider Inc.'s co-founder, CEO and editorial director, as well as a former top-ranked technology analyst on Wall Street. And let's run through all of this stuff. But let's start with what Zuckerberg said yesterday on the call, because he really did come out pretty passionately and said he thinks that people are using these documents to paint a false picture of the company. You agree with that?
3: I think that we are in this collective moment blaming Facebook for all of our ills as a society. And, and there's no question that Facebook has work to do. They are already putting a lot into it. They built the most powerful media and communications platform in the history of the world. Now they need to control it and make it better. And they're doing that. But the idea that Facebook's responsible for everything terrible is ludicrous. And, and I think it makes sense for everybody to look at what's going on. But what I'm seeing is a company that realizes that it has work to do and that its products are causing harm in certain areas and it needs to do better on that. But beyond that, I, I just think that this moment should pass. This Facebook is a good product. Lots of people still use it. It does something that no nothing else does. And it's the same for Instagram. And I think that's why you're seeing the stock hang in there despite the fact that the company's getting creamed every day by, as Mark Zuckerberg said, just article after article from many, many different organizations.
7: Yeah, there's a Yogi barism there. You know, nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. But let, let's step back and look at it. Th- these articles that are out there may not paint a complete picture of the company, but it does show one facet. And you say the company is changing and doing things to address this. I think the question becomes, wh- what, what are those things? What, what can we see? And why don't they talk more about that?
3: Well, I think they are talking about the fact that they are throttling a lot of the really bad stuff. They're certainly not getting all of it. And one of the things that Francis Haugen has pointed out is that they have optimized their algorithm on engagement. And anyone who is in the publishing business or the commentary business understands that if you want to have people react which is what is Facebook is emphasizing, just say things that are really controversial or say things that are pro one political team or the other. And people go crazy. And I think Facebook is realizing that that's not the only judgment of what is right to put into somebody's feed. And so they're going to have to make choices around that.
7: Are they going to change the algorithm, Henry, because that's that's a pretty big deal. And I think that people would have more questions about that and the impact on their ability to raise revenue than they, than they did even about, you know, Apple changing its privacy standards.
3: I, I think they'll absolutely continue to refine it. I don't think they're going to suddenly radically unplug it. And the other thing that I don't hear a lot of is, okay, great. So let's change Facebook and fix it. You know, Section 230 is not going to do it. Francis Haugen had some ideas about let's de-emphasize engagement. Okay, but we need to do that in a way that Facebook is still serving up stuff that I want to see and you want to see and and others want to see. So it's a really tricky problem. So my my big point would be there's no question that Facebook is creating some issues and has caused tragedies and, and so forth. But so have so many other products that we're not talking about how horrible they are and the, and, and the issues they cause in society. And this you know, is a I company. I, I hate that really argument. I hate method.
7: that argument. The reason we're talking about Facebook is because they're the biggest and the most powerful. And they have almost three billion uh, users people who are going Absolutely. there and checking this out. And, and, and you're right. They're not the only ones doing it. And they're not even the worst in, in some cases. But they are the biggest and the most powerful. And that's why they're getting the, the attention and the focus that they're getting.
3: That's right. And that is fair. And they, they need to continue to improve. And and all I'm saying is I think that Mark Zuckerberg's point that, listen, yes, we have things that we have to do. And thank you for helping us get better, which is what this is all. <laughs> thank do. you, sir. I have another. Yeah, no, I know. But it's not it, my point, Becky, there is it's just not a simple problem. And they are they're working on it. You, you don't know what you would block. You, you the whole idea is, this is the chance for all of us to share what we want to share. And then it's a question of what you amplify. It's just really tricky. And Facebook also creates a lot of good in the world. Again, as I said before, nothing else does what it does.
7: It's useful. It definitely puts people in contact. You stay in touch with relatives, with old friends that you might not have otherwise. There's all kinds of different great things that you can do if you're a charity or somebody else building up things. But, but I, I think it comes back to this question again of, are we just going to—I mean, when somebody says, well, everybody else is doing it, all I can think of is my mother's voice in my head when I used to say that to her when I was in high school or something. She'd take my head off for an answer like that. And is this just a question of kind of waiting it out, knowing that legislation is, is not very likely going to come because we have legislators that can't agree on anything, so we just wait this out? Or does somebody take the first step and actually make some changes internally um, within this ecosystem, not just Facebook, but within this industry? If Facebook doesn't lead, who will?
3: Well, I I think that all of the platform companies are making changes continuously. You look at YouTube. YouTube five years ago and 10 years ago was completely different than it is now. Yes, there's still a lot of stuff on there that YouTube wants to get control of. It's the same with Google, and it's the same with Facebook. I, I just think, again, the... These companies built these extraordinary platforms that are driven by users and people, and now they need to figure out how to continue to control them and make them better. And all I can say is Becky, you remember when we were younger, it was television is so horrible, it's ruining everything, video games, and and that's true. They also did some bad things too. So there, there's a lot of work to do in a lot of products is what I would say.
6: Hey, Henry, I, I wanted to pivot a little bit to this idea of the metaverse, which is something that came up on the call last night and and the company clearly spending an enormous amount.
1: We basically believe that the, the metaverse is gonna be the successor to the mobile internet, that it's going to enable social experiences that are the ultimate expression of what we try to build, which is allowing people to feel really present with the people they care about no matter where they actually are.
6: Do you think that the metaverse, uh, when when built, if you will, it will uh, be a a new game-changing feature or or program that's going to change our lives? Is this this an investment
3: that's worthy? I, I think it's extremely speculative, and I think it would actually be unlikely for Facebook to be the leader in it. It's rare that a company that led the last wave, no matter how much money they spend, is the dominant company in the next wave. And I think it is likely to take longer than some of the folks who are really excited about it think it will take. VR and AR we've heard about for a long time now and still used only in very niche environments. So I, I think it's going to be a huge, expensive bet. And just like some of the bets that Google has made in a lot of its moonshot projects, you know, it may not deliver what investors are hoping for there and it'll take time.
6: Okay, so Henry, if we put you in charge, what would you do then? It's, it, it,
3: if, ah, if, if not see, this the metaverse, is the question, what? This, no, this is the question you actually have to ask people is, okay, great. Okay, there are problems. What is the legislation? Write it for me that is going to fix Facebook or within the company. What are you going to do that's going to fix it? And And my point is... It is such a complicated problem, and it is reflecting, as Mark Zuckerberg said, society. This is we who are powering it. So they want to make it better. Obviously, people in the company, I'm sure, are abhorrent at the idea that the problem, the product is causing harm and, and so forth. So I think they just need to continue to get better and set the bar higher. And I think they will do that. And that's what I would do, uh, because, again, I think they have tougher decisions to make than a lot of the folks on the outside seem to think.
7: They should tell us about those decisions if they are making it. So it actually looks like they're trying to do something. Henry, let's talk about the earnings, because that's the the part that the street focused on yesterday. Stock up uh, by over one percent. And it's because they beat earnings expectations. And maybe we already knew they had already told us to expect that the Apple changes would would have a little bit of impact on the revenue
3: line. Yeah, I mean, I think overall, the company's still just remarkably healthy, especially given the pounding it's taking. And, and you mentioned this before as an advertising vehicle, it's still extraordinarily powerful. There's nothing else like it. So so I think they're in good shape there. I think the biggest concern for Facebook is the problem that a lot of these documents are highlighting, that the next generation is not using Facebook and in some cases is not using Instagram. You've got the rise of TikTok. Mark also talked about how they're gonna reorient the product toward younger people. That's gonna be tough. Um, And so I think that that is the big long-term issue. But I also think that in the near term, there's still so much more they can do with e-commerce and building out Instagram and and so forth. So I I think their results will look great for a while.
7: Henry, great to see you. Thanks for your time.
3: Great to be with you. Thank you, Becky.
8: Cheese
2: will be next. Still to come on Squawk Pond hypersonic weapons and the battle against billionaires' billions.
9: We'll hear from Washington tax expert Lauren Pons on the Hill's wealth agenda. Really, we have to look at, is this a wealth tax in in the loosest sense of the term, or is this something else, another way to tax capital gains? And whether it's the latter, it still calls into question constitutionality
2: Welcome back. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, and we start this section of Squawk Pod at supersonic speed. Well, actually, faster. Aerospace defense contractor Raytheon came out with the first successful demonstration of a hypersonic weapon system. Hypersonic, that's five times the speed of sound. Raytheon CEO Greg Hayes mentioned it to Joe on today's broadcast.
3: The beauty of a scramjet. You're going so fast through the atmosphere that you no longer have to run a compressor to compress the air and then ignite it. The air is being compressed by the mere
5: speed of the vehicle itself and it becomes self-sustaining.
2: And we're still wrapping our heads around it.
5: Good morning, and uh, welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC, live from the Nasdaq Market Site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan, along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. I mean, not for nothing. Europe in, a, in like a half hour—would that not make things life a lot easier? I mean, that, even for Davos, right? When we head over there, just right into right. What happens what, to your cheeks when you're flying that fast? I was going to ask—I was going to ask what the G forces feel <laughs> like, but um, we could ask Shatner, and obviously he's 90. He, he was fine. Let's talk a little taxes right now. Uh, as Democrats uh, move
6: closer to implementing the billionaire's tax, or are they? Uh, there are already moves being made to game the system. And Robert Frank joins us with a breakdown. Robert, you've been working the phones.
8: Yeah, Andrew, lots to work through here. And we hope to get the details of this tax maybe today or tomorrow. But as you mentioned, accountants already looking at potential loopholes. The first set of workarounds is focus on trust. So billionaires could set up a trust to hold their shares, which would reduce or eliminate their tax. They would likely give up some voting power in that structure, but the beneficiaries could be family members, so the ownership would still be protected. And then there's charity. Now, the tax only applies to those worth $1 billion or more. Now, since more than half of billionaires in the U.S. are around $1 to $2 billion, they could gift their assets to their own foundation, or a charity to get them right under that billion-dollar threshold. They get the tax deduction, and they would vo- avoid this annual tax. And then they're staying private. The annual tax, as it we've heard about right now, would only apply to marketable securities like stocks or bonds. Closely held assets like private companies, art, gold, or property, they would not be subject to an annual tax. They would be subject to this tax once it's sold. So you could see people shifting their stock holdings to private assets or even a wave of go private deals where billionaires would sort of see their companies go private and they would avoid that annual tax. And Andrew, you know, it, Wall Street already working on products that would allow corporate founders to borrow more against their stock or buy derivatives that would limit their upside, but also help pay this annual tax.
6: Okay, so, Robert, the real question that I would ask you on, the, on that last piece is, do you believe the lawmakers are sitting there this week hearing about these types of efforts, thinking, OK, before we do this, if we're going to do this, we either need to close those loopholes or we need to figure out how to do this?
8: Um, I doubt it. This is coming together so quickly. And if you look at the Ron Wyden plan, which is the blueprint of this, It it is a very different tax. It imagined looking at households or pass throughs with 10 million or more, so they weren't just focused on the top. And we just don't know what this thing will look like. Again, they're putting it together in a matter of a couple days because they suddenly needed revenue. So I guarantee you, based on past experience, they're not looking at trust. They're not looking at charity or foundation work throughs. They're not looking at how Wall Street could structure a derivatives product to get around this. Now, hopefully, by the time it becomes a bill, maybe those things will be in there. But I know talking to accountants who help advise Congress on these taxes that right now they just don't All this is coming together too quickly.
7: Hey, Robert, two questions. Uh, One way that they could get around all of that and and, and make sure none of these loopholes would stick would just be to make it retroactive. So nothing you do this year would would matter. I don't know if there's talk of that. And second of all, I mean, is it even constitutional? Will it be challenged because the 16th Amendment says that Congress can um, go ahead and impose any sort of income tax they want? But this is a wealth tax. It's a tax. It's not income.
8: Right. So on the constitutional question, I spent a lot of yesterday talking to constitutional experts and tax lawyers and on on both sides, really, there is an argument to be made that income of any source can be taxed. The question will come down to whether a court will decide that unrealized capital gains are income or if they're not, then it's going to be tough to get this through the Supreme Court as a constitutional tax. Um, you know, as far as your other, what was your other question? If they
7: want to get around to any potential loopholes, why not just make it retroactive? I mean, just like we'd, we had thought maybe these other things would be retroactive this year, meaning if you were going to set up a trust or try and move any assets this year, it wouldn't matter.
8: Yeah, the, if they made it retroactive, they, they would lose out this year's. But but, you know, you could next year and years going forward, certainly set up a foundation or a trust or those things. But yeah, Given that Biden implied retroactivity and so did the House for that capital gains increase and the step up, you could see them considering that for this as well.
7: Robert, thank you.
6: Joining us right now to debate the legalities of a billionaire's taxes, is Stephanie Kelton, a professor of economics and public policy at SUNY Stony Brook. Also, uh, Lauren Pons is a uh, tax policy co-lead at uh, Miller and Chevalier, uh, former tax counsel, we should also say, for the House and Ways and Means Committee. Good morning to both of you. Stephanie, straight up, is it constitutional what's happening? Some people would describe this as a wealth tax. Some people describe this as confiscatory.
4: Well, you brought an economist on, not a lawyer, uh, Andrew. So I'm not really going to be able to speak to the legality of it. What I will say is that a number of proponents of this are themselves lawyers. Of course, Senator uh, Elizabeth Warren is an attorney and so she seems to think that it is legal and I'll try to stay in my lane and uh, trust that those with the legal expertise aren't pushing something that that is, you know, plainly
9: not constitutional.
6: OK, we'll talk about the economics of in just a second. But, Lauren, do you want to do you want to speak to the policy implications, the legality here?
9: Sure. I mean, I think what's really at issue is whether this this tax ta- tax is income and a question of what is income. And that brings into question the the legality, the constitutionality of the proposal. What is problematic is that we don't have legislative text at this point, and so it is a bit um, speculative to say that it is or is not constitutional, but what the concerns are really center on the definition of income and what is actually being taxed.
6: What's the chance though, I mean, I would argue to you, it, there's almost a 100% chance that this goes to court. The question is, does, does it go to the Supreme Court? And how quickly does something like this wind its way there?
9: It would ultimately end up in the Supreme Court, certainly, but I, I, it will take a long time for any of these claims to make its way um, there. And I think that the real question is, what does the actual text of the law look like? And on what basis would the constitutional challenge be brought? Really, we have to look at is this a wealth tax in the in the loosest sense of the term or is this something else, another way to tax capital gains? And whether it's the latter, it still calls into question constitutionality.
6: Stephanie, how, how, how much money do you think can, can genuinely be raised by doing something like this? And what are the knock on effects um, planned or unplanned?
4: I think the estimates are that uh, this tax would bring in something like 200, 250 billion. Um, So it's not nothing, but it doesn't come very close to closing the gap in terms of offsetting all of the spending that Democrats are looking to do. Uh, Andrew, I don't know. Uh, I'm sure there would be some unintended consequences. You're already hearing people like Senator Romney talk about how billionaires will simply respond by you know, moving uh, income into things like fine art and so forth. And I guess to that, I would just say, well, you know, watch out, because uh, Democrats have a a wealth tax plan for that maneuver as well.
7: Hey, Lauren, just back to how it's kind of complicated, how it's certain to get challenged at the Supreme Court, how that could take some time. Um, This is something Senator Joe Manchin was just talking about, how he doesn't think they're they're really— all that near to having legislation written, it sounds like it would have to be legislation that would have to be carefully crafted to make sure that it withstands a test like that. Is this really something that you think a deal gets done by the end of this week?
9: I think it's very hard to imagine seeing legislative text by the end of this week. We have to remember that Senator Wyden's proposal was, was uh, unveiled more than two years ago, and we still have yet to see legislative text with regard to what's commonly referred to as his mark-to-market plan. And so, I am sure that they are working on it. But you know, once it's unveiled, there's still time. There still needs to be time for it to be vetted, both within the caucus uh, by other lawmakers and also by the public. Um, and so, we know that we're on a compressed timeline. The the deadline is essentially at the end of the year, and there's a lot of work to do between now and then to make sure that this is something that can not only pass constitutional muster, but also garner the support of other members of the caucus.
6: Hey, Stephanie, if we could make you uh, king or queen for the day, and and you thought there was a way to raise uh, money from the highest income earners, but not this way, is there a different way you would do it?
4: Yeah, sure. I think the, you know, and you've talked about this for months on this program. I think the lowest hanging pay for fruit is enforcement. That is something that I think the American people clearly understand. We shouldn't have tax cheats. We shouldn't have very wealthy people hiding and failing to disclose income they ought to be paying tax on. So, you know, the IRS commissioner has estimated that there's as much as a trillion dollars annually out there that isn't captured, that people ought to be paying in federal income tax. So I think, you know, providing some more resources to the IRS, stepping up enforcement, that is a lot of money. The estimates are that it's in the hundreds of billions over the first 10 years, but then you get into the trillions in the in the out years. So that's the low hanging pay for fruit here. If, if this is the game that uh, lawmakers are committed to playing.
6: But the other thing we keep hearing uh, about, and we just heard it from Robert Frank, is just all of the maneuvers, the derivative instruments and other things that Wall Street may try to create to get around this. And I mentioned that because I just wonder whether even the, the 200 or uh, 250 billion dollars that we're talking about, potentially this raising, it even gets to that. If folks start you know, taking loans against their stock, moving things into other places, I'm not, I'm not sure how, how it's going to happen. Steph, what do you think?
4: I, I think that if, if we're worried about that, and I think it's reasonable to worry about that, then tightening up the tax code in other ways. Closing the carried interest uh, loophole, ending step up of basis. Those are ways to sort of counteract maybe some of what might happen right. if a tax like this were to pass.
6: We are going to leave the conversation there, Stephanie and Lauren. Thank you uh, for the conversation, and the debate. We'll see what happens. Thanks. A company
5: called DraftKings. DraftKings. Oh, yeah, that company. DraftKings shares uh, are higher. The company says it's terminating uh, offer talks. With UK-based sports betting giant Entain, in a statement, DraftKings said, uh, "After further analysis and discussions with Entain's board of directors, it will not make a firm offer for Entain." And you guys probably haven't noticed. Uh, do you know the NBA is full swing? Is back full? The NBA is back. I mean, the, the, the Bucks just won, right? I mean, that was like that just happened. But remember, that was pushed forward or pushed back because of COVID and now it's like I kind of like it like that Uh, you know and then you know what else is going on tonight which is a little weird because you can't move the World Series from Georgia the World Series is going to (laughs) be three you know you can't say whoa wait a second here and the Braves so it's and it's pretty two pretty good teams that seem to be peaking um, towards the end of the season Braves Braves first game is tonight um, but I think it's in Houston. Andrew, are you betting? What, are you? I did. I, what's the, I took the what's Braves tonight. I took. The, I, I got a, a. The Houston is favored uh, because they got it's weird with baseball. I they got an extra inning. Right. They got an extra half inning. They always get the bottom of the ninth, which a lot of times you're. If you take the other team, you won't. You know, if you're. If you're winning, you don't even play that bottom of the night. You know how it works. But, yeah, I got Atlanta tonight and the, uh, and the under, because I think the pitching, they, they put their best pitchers in the first game. They want to try and win that first game. But who knows? $5, and it was a $5 free bet.
2: And that's it. That's Squawk Pod for today. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show, right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow.
1: We are clear. Thanks, guys.